Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to America's Home for Stadium News and Information. Stadium's USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. We're on assignment and reporting from the Allen County War Memorial Coliseum in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Our show is all about special places, and the Sacramento community is thrilled about the new Golden One Arena. That's the new building that just went online in downtown Sacramento. It's the home of the Kings. We'll get a tour from Kings.com writer Kevin Fippen. With the Super Bowl coming up, we'll dig into the history of this event. Our guest, Sports Illustrated's Austin Murphy. The NASCAR season gets underway soon. Beyond the flags, Chris Olmstead has his thinking cap on as he explores the various fans of the sport. And Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran explains why the financial structure behind a possible Raider move to Las Vegas is falling apart. But first, the stadium's beat with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? Well, NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell says the league has not made a determination about a Raiders move to Las Vegas. Speaking during his State of the League address at Super Bowl festivities, the commissioner was clear on whether or not the league would allow gambling interest into an ownership position. I don't see an ownership position in a team from a casino. That is not something that's uh, consistent with our policies. Not likely a stadium either. Goodell's announcement comes after casino mogul Sheldon Adelson announced he was backing out of a deal to help fund a new Raiders stadium in Vegas. If Vegas falls through, could San Diego be an option for the Raiders? Despite how crazy that sounds, Goodell did address the possibility, saying a stadium solution would need to be found if a team is to move to San Diego in the future. Mark and Bill dive in deeper to the Vegas issue later in the show. Speaking of the Chargers, the team has officially terminated their stadium lease at San Diego's Qualcomm Stadium. The lease comes to a close with just four years remaining on the stadium contract. The Chargers are preparing to play the next two seasons at Carson's StubHub Center before joining the Rams in Inglewood in 2019. Rumors are swirling that the relationship between the New York Islanders and Barclays Center management is not on good terms. Bloomberg is reporting Barclays is likely to dump the team after the 2018-2019 season. The reason? Well, the venue could make more money from concerts and other events if the Islanders were not playing there. The Isles are playing their second season at the Brooklyn venue after moving from the Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. And the Oakland A's reportedly are looking at four sites for a new Bay Area ballpark. And by year's end, they hope to announce just exactly where they will build a new venue. 
The current Coliseum site, along with some downtown options, remain on the table. The project is expected to be a privately funded stadium. Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. You can hear the Tom-Toms beating from Sacramento. They are on to something. The beautiful Golden One Center, and everybody is talking about it. This is what appears to be a very successful public-private partnership in terms of building an arena. It's a great facility. It's getting rave reviews. And we're going to visit with one of the reviewers. And a guy who knows well he's been in there, has even done a video on it, Kevin Fippen, who writes for the King's blog, Sacktown Royalty. You've got to love that. And is also a writer and a contributor for the NBA Kings.com. Well, Kevin, you got in there before it was finished. You saw both the before and after. Tell us about this place and uh, how well it has worked out, what it's like to sit and watch a game in there. Oh, man. I mean, coming from the venue that we had before, which was built in 1989 and never updated since. I mean, this place is it's magical. It's like a, it's like a basketball playground. Um, I've never seen, I've never, I've been to a lot of other arenas around the country. I I've not seen one as nice as this. Um, and to know that it's inside of Sacramento, um, it's just so special to us. There was a great effort made here to combine the work in a public and private aspect of this project. Uh, there was great sensitivity to the public side of this, even by those involved privately. Fill us in on how this actually worked out and how you can tell the difference. There's, There's been a lot of care taken to make sure that this building reflects the, the city outside, right? You get to our downtown, you walk into the building, you feel like you're in downtown Sacramento. The Sacramento area is kind of a big, giant, urban sprawl and for years all the major development kind of happened in the in the suburbs and little cities surrounding it and the moment this arena plan was greenlit there's just been this huge shift in priorities and the focus is now back on the central city everyone wants to be there and work there buy there and develop there and the vibe down and around the arena is just is just amazing Let's go ahead and take a look inside, and I had the benefit of taking a look at the video that you did on this, and the thing that stood out to me was that huge multi-story glass partition or glass wall on the one side where you can look out and the whole city just seems to be peering into the arena. Uh, Let's start with that. It's an absolutely uh, gorgeous feature of the building, I think. Yeah, anybody listening, I think, um, needs to make a trip down and check it out. It's it's beautiful. They're these big, giant glass. They work almost like garage doors, and they kind of roll up. So the, the canes can actually bring the outside in, essentially. If the weather's nice, and it usually is in Sacramento, um, fans on the inside and the outside both feel like they're part of the action. Mm. Uh, there's a great, there's a series of bridges along the inside of the arena as well that give you great vantage points of the game. And... Um, are actually places where fans can interact and hang out during the game away from their seats but still not miss any of the action. And those bridges overlook those openings so they can kind of, they just kind of flow right out into the outside. The Kings are calling it the first indoor outdoor arena, which is 
kind of gimmicky, but also true in a lot of ways. Hmm. I understand the scoreboard and the projection capabilities that it has. It's being very well received. Tell us about it. Yeah. So our old scoreboard, I don't know if, uh, when the last time you've been to Arco or Sleep Train, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. it was like, it was essentially a glorified big screen TV. So if you haven't seen it, I can't explain to you how bad it was beyond this, other than to say that the, there's nothing in the NBA that lets you know you're out of your league, like looking up and seeing like grandma's old console television staring back at you, right? <laughs> it got so bad that towards Sleep Train's end of life, new management wrapped the existing scoreboard in these large temporary high definition projection screens just to kind of compensate. Uh, but golden one is home to this beautiful 84 foot long, I think it's 6,100 square feet, 4k scoreboard. It runs from basket to basket. So if you're sitting center court, you get the entire, like you can see the, the entire scope of this thing. They say that it's basically the length of an 18 wheel semi truck. It's seven times larger than that old scoreboard I talked about. It's beautiful and it's kind of intimidating at first um, because it's just it's kind it's just really overwhelming going from the old building to the new one, and this is the first thing you see right when you walk in. Well, one of the big tests for this building was going to be how well it handled social media on personal devices. And we all heard in advance a lot of the wiring that was going in there and all of the special stuff that they were putting in there to make sure that it would work well. So my question to you, Kevin, does it work as well as advertised? Yeah, Bill, it works. Uh, The ownership team's made up of Silicon Valley tech moguls, as you know, Mm -hmm. and the venue definitely reflects that. I mean, there's robot security guards rolling around the concourse um they call it the most connected arena in the world and that probably translates to a lot of things that like you and i won't understand but to fans it basically means it's definitely got wi-fi and you're very plugged in we have heard so much about what a great arena this is and i'm glad you could take time to uh, take us inside and give us a good view of it kevin we wish you well and enjoy yourself Hey, you too. Thanks so much. A pleasure. Kevin Fippen writes for the King's blog, Sacktown Royalty. He's also a contributing writer for the NBA's Kings.com. We thank him. Coming up, we trace the evolution of the Super Bowl with Sports Illustrated's Austin Murphy. That's next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Super Bowl 51 is set to kick off at NRG Stadium in Houston. 
and that's coming up this weekend, the Pats and the Falcons. We're going to examine the history and evolution of the Super Bowl and look at how it has become what it is today, a worldwide spectacle. And our guest, Austin Murphy, senior writer for Sports Illustrated. Austin wrote the introduction to the recently released Sports Illustrated book, Super Bowl Gold, 50 Years of the Big Game. It chronicles the game's definitive story, the humble beginnings back in the 1960s, all the way to the astronomical figures paid for advertising rights today. Austin, congratulations. Uh, My goodness, what a prime assignment you have had. How did you get the assignment to go ahead and add to uh, this uh, compilation of some very, very interesting material? It is a compilation, uh, and thank you. And I had uh, written a piece uh, a couple of years ago for the magazine. It was one of the more fun stories that I've worked on. And they said, can you deliver us 4,000 words on just the evolution of the halftime show, the Super Bowl halftime show? And so there are some memorable ones. And the early ones were maybe some marching bands and a, a couple astronauts in a car, you know, driving around the field at halftime, waving to the crowds. And then there was up with people, uh, and then it became a big, uh, you know, the biggest concert of the year. And I wrote about Janet Jackson a little bit. So I was asked to, um, sort of massage and adapt that essay for this book. And I also have the introductory essay, just kind of trying to fix this thing in the firm, this beast, this cultural colossus in the firmament. And that was a, it's a tough assignment because like everything about the game is gigantic. It's, it's the biggest thing you can think of. It's over the top. It's excessive in this way. It's a mirror of our culture. What I ended up doing was getting in touch with the three guys that you'd seen in the visa commercial who have been to every Super Bowl and just sort of, you know, I basically had them do my job for me and, and talk about their observations of how the game had changed and how the Super Bowl fortnight, you know, you know, they talked about back in the day, you used to see more of the players out, you know, in the, in the bars during the week. And now I think uh, the guys are a little smarter than that, at least most of them. You mentioned the hype of this thing. How many years have we seen a situation where the game itself just couldn't live up to the hype? And I would think that's sure. an awfully big challenge for the NFL. Right. I think by the time the game has become lopsided and a blowout, you know, all the, the checks from the companies that have paid three or four or five million for a half minute or a minute of advertising time, those checks have cleared. And so the NFL is no longer particularly concerned. But, um, you know, it's just as with any other event, I think about half the time it's a pretty good game. 25% of the time maybe uh, it's a dog like last year, and we've been on a pretty good roll lately. Yeah, I think, too, that cities like New Orleans, for example, Miami, for example, which are really fun and sun places. Of course, they've called Miami the fun and sun capital of the world for years. Those two, it seems to me, those cities have the strongest roots. And uh, now with uh, Miami, of course, having a newer generation stadium and they're working on that stadium and and doing uh, work on the, the Sun Life Stadium. They've done a lot of work on it. So it's supposed to be very, very nice. And, of course, the Mercedes-Benz Superdome, which uh, has been very good for a number of years. So it seems facilities-wise, it's almost a perfect match. 
Yeah, and you're you're absolutely right, and that's why so many of these shared memories we have of Super Bowls or the you know the stories that come down, Lyle Alzado or some you know some other bad boy raider uh, you know closing <laughs> down Bourbon Street three nights before the game. It's Joe Namath, I believe, was on a chaise lounge at the Fountain Blue in uh, you know South Beach or in Miami, guaranteeing victory, and then and then actually he didn't play particularly well, but it, but he did end up backing it up, and it it ended up investing the the still fairly young Super Bowl with a legitimacy that it had theretofore lacked. You mentioned earlier the evolution of the Super Bowl halftime show. Now, until you've seen one, this may not make a lot of sense to people, but obviously those who've watched it obviously know it's a very, very big deal. You've written quite a bit about that. What are your observations to how this phenomenon has uh, kind of naturally grown into a an entertainment spectacular in its own right. Well, I mentioned the the Super Bowl at Pontiac Stadium and I believe that was in the 90s. I want to say maybe 92, early 90s, but anyway, the halftime show had been sort of Disney-fied, and it was very this sort of milk toast, inoffensive, but also triacly, frankly boring. And that was the Super Bowl that the NFL got its head handed to it by counter-programming. Over on Fox, there was a show called In Living Color, and they had spent the previous month saying, hey, at halftime come on over to Fox and at least, you know, you'll have a few laughs. And it was this highly irreverent and side splitting, uh, the Wayans brothers. I remember Jim Carrey. It was, um, it was really well done. So after that, I mean, and, and viewership really did drop significantly during halftime. And so after that, the NFL said, okay, and some enough with sort of the JV, you know, dinner theater, caliber halftime shows and they went big it wasn't soon it wasn't too long after that they got diana ross in there uh and next thing you know um michael jackson and these performers even though they weren't getting paid figured out that and the draw for michael jackson was that they let them know how many like the eyeballs around the world so this is you know michael jackson said something like so this is an opportunity for people who have never seen me in countries that have never seen me to catch my act. And I talked to the guy who, who got Michael Jackson to agree to perform and his people. And he said he was, you know, nobody took rehearsal more seriously. He worked, you know, he, nobody worked harder. And I have to say that until the very end, when it was sort of did, it sort of slowed down with those kind of, we are the world, um, sappiness. He put on a great show. Um, now after his sister, Janet Jackson kind of scandalized, uh, well, I mean, Justin Timberlake helped, but there was, uh, after, uh, quote unquote Nipplegate, there was, you know, the, the FCC came in with heavy fines, which were later overruled. I, I probably the country overreacted a little bit, but that ushered in a period of safer, older, some would say geriatric, uh, bands, Springsteen, the who Paul McCartney, um, I refer to them as ARP with people, a reference to <laughs> up with people, which not everyone remembers, but they were, that was another kind of unfortunate chapter in halftimes. 
It is great to visit, and I think everybody's going to look forward to seeing the uh, wonderful book, Super Bowl Gold, 50 Years of the Big Game. Uh, Continued success with this. It sounds like a wonderful beat, and you've taken some unusual angles on this, so I give you a lot of credit. Thank you for that, and uh, best wishes to you as well. Thank you. Austin Murphy of Sports Illustrated, a senior writer, does a great job and has contributed to the book Super Bowl Gold. 50 years of the big game. Now, when we return, we will be visiting with Mark Madorn. We'll go to the water cooler and find out what's going on as we talk shop. That is next, coming your way on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out FanEssentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit FanEssentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit FanEssentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Let's dig into Talking Shop once again. We examine the week's stadium headlines, and boy, we have some this week. Mark Madoran, president and creator of the Stadiums USA website, will bring them to you next. Stadiums USA is the preeminent source for stadium news and information, and you can listen to podcasts of our program, as well as testing your stadium knowledge at our quiz site, Everything available to you at stadiumsusa.com. Now, let's go ahead and hear, Mark, a couple of key funding streams for a new Raiders stadium in Las Vegas. Those have disappeared this week. Boy, it looks like they're almost going back to square one. What is going on here, and what does it mean for Raiders owner Mark Davis? Sheldon Adelson, who is a billionaire casino owner, has decided to pull out of the project. Adelson is the chief executive of Las Vegas Sands Corporation. A big part of the problem was communication. The Raiders submitted a 117-page proposal, which included the lease agreement to the Clark County Stadium Authority, and Adelson was not even consulted about the contents of it. Hmm. Since Adelson was cut out of that discussion, he, in fact, felt that he wasn't needed in the deal. In another development, Goldman Sachs, the investment banker out of New York, has also decided to withdraw from the project. They were tied in with Adelson, and they were also involved, and they decided their involvement was uh, contingent on Adelson's partnership in the plan. The original project was funded at $650 million from Adelson, $500 million from the Raiders, $750 million from the state of Nevada, $1.9 billion being the total for 65,000-seat retractable dome stadium. Is it possible the Nevada legislature could revisit the proposal and divert these funds elsewhere? Absolutely. And Mark Davis still hasn't jumped over the next hurdle, which is the owner approval process. The NFL owners need to give him 24 votes to approve relocation, and that's supposed to be coming in March. It looked like it's probably going to be a done deal two weeks ago. But 
who knows what the owners are thinking. And they may see Adelson pulling out and decide maybe this project isn't the right one for the Raiders, and the owners might decide to kill the whole thing. So, Bill... There's more drama coming on <laughs> Stadiums of Our Lives. <laughs> no wonder Ronnie Lott was smiling today. Now we can figure out why. I'm sure that has to be great news for him. You know, we thought they were just kind of messing around in Oakland. There was no chance. How does this change the Oakland effort to keep the team there? Well, a day after the Las Vegas stadium deal changed, Ronnie Lott's group in Oakland issued a statement reinforcing their willingness to develop Oakland. They have a plan which includes land where the existing stadium would be. They have investment dollars and a tentative agreement with the city and the county. What they don't have is any interest from the Raiders. But without the Raiders' involvement, any of these discussions seem to be pointless because the Raiders are really the key element in all of these discussions. Mm-hmm. Initial comments about the lot group the investment group, indicated that they wanted to have a minority percentage ownership of the team in exchange for the stadium financing. I don't think Mark Davis is going to give up any percentage of ownership of the team at this time. I would say the NFL has an awful lot of homework to do behind closed doors to get this all straightened out. And that homework is going to have to wait, Mark, until after the so-called big game, as we call it, the Super Bowl, obviously, is played. One question to be answered here will be NRG Stadium and that roof they have. You know, it's kind of like, she loves me, she loves me not. You know, and they're trying to figure, (laughs) do we have it open or don't we have it open? What's the story? Well, it's like if you had a convertible top on your car. (laughs) If it was cold and rainy, I think it would be up. And if it's comfortable and nice and the sun was out, it's probably down. It's pretty much the same for the roof at NRG. Um, The interesting thing about NRG Stadium is they can open that roof in as little as 10 minutes. It's a very short amount of time. They have rules for open roof. The rules say that the temperature must be between 65 and 78 degrees and no chance of rain. The current forecast calls for temperatures in the 70s, which matches their criteria. But there is a slight chance of rain or scattered showers in the forecast. Now, the NFL has said in the past they want to play with the roof open. My guess is the roof will remain closed if there's any rain anywhere near them and they won't open it. Um, A final decision will probably be made about 24 hours before kickoff. Mm -hmm. And the last Super Bowl that was played in Houston, which was the uh, 2004 game, they did play with the roof closed. Time to roll back the clock, take a look at some important dates in stadium and ballpark history. You have gathered a few of these. Mark, what do you have? Oh, this week, 1974, a huge crowd of 1,641 <laughs> attend the NBA game at Cleveland Arena to watch the Cavs take on Golden State. This year, there were probably were that many people standing in line at the concession stands <laughs> when the two teams met. Uh, This week in 1999, in their one and only Super Bowl appearance, the Atlanta Falcons lose to John Elway and the Denver Broncos played at Miami's, at that point, Pro Players Stadium. Now it's the Hard Rock Stadium. Hmm. And before we get out of here, we're going to our weekly segment known as Stadium's USA Trivia, one of your favorite, Bill. Oh, yes. And, of course, this week we're talking Super Bowl. You'll find our questions at StadiumUSA.com, and we challenge you to go there and take the quiz. So this week, here's your question, Bill. Which Super Bowl game 
was the first to be a complete sellout. Was it Super Bowl one at the L.A. Coliseum, Packers and Chiefs? Mm-hmm. Was it Super Bowl two at the Orange Bowl, Packers and Raiders? Was it Super Bowl three, also at the Orange Bowl, Jets and Colts? Or was it Super Bowl four, played in New Orleans at Tulane Stadium, Vikings versus Chiefs? Is it possible that Super Bowl one was not sold out? I don't believe it. I think that it was. And uh, although you are looking uh, at the L.A. Coliseum here and kind of a soft fan base and a new thing getting started, uh, I'm guessing uh, Packers versus Chiefs was a sellout, the very first one. An excellent guess, (laughs) but incorrect. (laughs) (laughs) Super Bowl one was well attended at the L.A. Coliseum. Yeah. It wasn't called the Super Bowl then. It was called the championship game. Mm-hmm. The crowd there was 61,946, which is a nice crowd, but nowhere near big enough to fill the Coliseum. The first one to actually sell out, Super Bowl two in Miami, the Packers versus the Raiders. Mm-hmm. That game drew 75,546. And it was packed, and they watched Vince Lombardi's Packers and Bart Starr beat the Raiders 33-14. to Mark, always a pleasure. We'll see you next week. Have a great week. Enjoy the game. Mark Madoran, We Talk Shop. Now, stay tuned. Coming up, the checkered flag will soon drop on a new NASCAR season. Beyond the Flags, Chris Olmstead joins us, and we'll talk about it next on SB Nation Radio. As we move into February, that means we're right on the doorstep of the beginning of the NASCAR season, and we're going to check it out with Chris Olmstead, who's been with us before, beyondtheflag.com. And in advance of that, Chris wrote a very interesting article about NASCAR fans, and he has analyzed what he considers to be five types of fans that populate the sport today. It's in foxsports.com. Chris, this is interesting. You put your thinking cap on. Uh, Tell us about the article, and how did you sort this out the way you did? Yeah, the, the crazy thing about NASCAR fans is, you know, you just can't call a NASCAR fan a NASCAR fan. There's really five types of NASCAR fans out there. You know, if, if you're a NASCAR fan, you go through it. More likely than not, you really do fall into one of these five categories. One of the fan groups that you spoke about was what you referred to as the seasoner. What type of a fan is that? The seasoner is really the type of fan who is in it for the long haul the entire season. They're the fan where they know when every single race is going to be. They know that, you know, technically the first race of the season is the clash at Daytona, even though the regular season begins with the Daytona 500. Mm -hmm. That's kind of one of the nitpicky things in NASCAR that NASCAR fans will bicker back and forth about is, you know, we have some NASCAR fans who are like, oh, I can't wait for the season to begin with the Daytona 500. And then you have the seasoner step in and be like, well, actually, it begins with the clash at Daytona the weekend before. So that's kind of where our seasoner lies. They watch every race. They watch all the pre-race shows. Mm. They are in it for the entire season. You had a great group here called the Race Day Warriors. What about them? They are equally as passionate as the seasoners, but they they don't get to see every race on TV. 
These are the fans who are going to the races. These are the people who will, you know, spend the money and they will invest the entire four day weekend to be at the track. They may not have the stats to hit you with the ins and the outs, but they can tell you every good place to get food at Daytona. They can tell you the back roads to get you in and out of Phoenix. They have the same passion and knowledge but just a little bit different than our season-long fans have. Well, here's the well-heeled group now. You mentioned a group of fans called the big-ticket fans. Is well-heeled a good way to describe them? It's a very good way to describe it. Our big-ticket fans, they watch maybe five, six, seven races of the year. They watch the Daytona 500. They're there for Talladega because it's the biggest track in NASCAR. They watch the Bristol Night Race. They're going to watch the Southern 500 and the Brickyard at uh, Indianapolis, and they're going to watch the championship race at the end. And then they try to piece together everything that happened in between because they don't really care about the smaller races. Chris, you also mentioned what seems to be a new brand of NASCAR fan, a new category for us to consider. And this is the fan you refer to as the playoff fan. Introduce us to this fan. The playoff fan is the person who, you know, they'll check who won the race the first 26 races of the season. They'll moderately follow their driver, you know, if, if they're a, Ch- a Dale Jr. fan, for example, if Dale Jr. won the race that week, they'll check it out online and they'll brag about it throughout the week. But they didn't actually watch the race. And then playoff time comes and they are all in if their driver is in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. These are the fans. Th- this is the fan in the bar that you'll come across halfway through the playoffs. They're all about, you know, their favorite driver in the playoffs and you bring up something that happened during the season, you can tell they have no idea what's going on. Yeah. And then finally, you have a group. This would probably be my sentimental favorite, the old-timers. They're probably the ones that can tell you all about the whiskey running from which it all started years ago. And uh, tell us about this group. The old-timers are very similar to the baseball purists. These groups are one in the same. They will sit there, and they will watch today's product, and they'll tell you how much better it was 40 years ago <laughs> and why drivers like Jimmy Johnson couldn't hold a candle to Richard Petty. That's what this group will do. Nothing that NASCAR does today can even come close to what they were doing 50 years ago with 50-year-old technology. Chris, you know, you keep an eye, in addition to this article, obviously, you're keeping a very close eye on what is going on with NASCAR and its day-to-day workings. And recently, we saw some new rules which could overhaul the sport to a degree. Give us an overview of uh, your impression of the recently announced changes. Basically, what the new format is going to do is it's going to make every lap of every race matter. Under the previous playoff system, how it would work is if you win a race, you qualify for what used to be called the chase. And then basically the rest of the season didn't matter. With the new system, if you win a race, you still qualify for the chase, but they've added segments into the race. And, you know, it's going to be different for every racetrack, but every race is going to have three segments. And depending on if you're leading at that segment end, you're going to earn playoff points. More importantly, they are going to award playoff points for the 10 drivers who finished top 10 at the end of the regular season. So now, if like last season, Denny Hamlin won the Daytona 500. 
Denny Hamlin has to now continue to race hard for the next 25 races because he needs to earn as many playoff points as he can throughout the entire season Mm -hmm. because when push comes to shove, those playoff points are probably going to go a long way in deciding who wins the championship. Well, Chris, you're going to be hitting the road now for a number of great races that you're going to follow throughout the year, and we invite everybody to check out your continuing coverage on beyondtheflag.com. Look for Chris Olmstead. He's the guy. Chris, thank you so much for the visit. Have a lot of fun, and good luck on your frequent flyer miles. Bill, thanks for having me. Have a good one. Bill Hazen saying, stay tuned. We have a full day of sports coverage ahead on SB Nation Radio. Guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.